You're listening to the Westminster Canterbury Tales podcast, creating community to foster joy and well-being. Thanks for listening. Hello, my name is Amy Shire, and welcome to the Westminster Canterbury Tales podcast. In this edition of Tell Me a Story, I have the privilege of speaking with Westminster Canterbury resident Michael Pavlikevich. Welcome, Michael. Thank you. First of all, did I pronounce your name correctly? Absolutely. Great job. Thank you. (laughs) And Pavlikevich, what nationality is that? Oh, my parents are both uh, Polish. And uh, interesting, just a small diversion. Uh, Both of my parents were born in the United States, but taken back to Poland as children. And they grew up in Poland and uh, came back uh, in the period between the two wars. Met here and here I am. Which leads me sort of to my next question is, um, when and where were you born? I was born in Brooklyn, New York. A native New Yorker, grew up in New York City, riding the subways, going to Brooklyn Technical High School. And uh, I loved it. I still love New York. And tell me a little bit about your family and a little bit more about where you grew up. I was born in Brooklyn and moved to Queens, you know, when I was a child. And I grew up in a place that was Irish, but my community, uh, my family community was Polish. So when we had family gatherings, it was all very Polish. We'd go to Polish weddings and we'd have baptisms and all kinds of interesting things. On the other hand, in the neighborhood, all my friends were Irish. We would have an annual football game uh, in, among the kids. It was the Irish International game. <laughs> and the Irish kids would have to play all the other kids. <laughs> so that's growing up in New York. Uh, it was great, and uh, I loved it. Let's talk a little bit about school. What kind of uh, student were you? And what when you were in school, besides your studies, what were you interested in? Did you have any extracurriculars? Right, I went to uh, went to Brooklyn Tech, which was a, a engineering high school. Uh, it's a, a magnet school. It's um, a very, 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 I want to say prestigious, but I didn't add to the prestige <laughs> while I was there. Gradu- graduated 986 out of 1,010. <laughs> and um, I, I had to take, you know, in Brooklyn Tech, you take every course. You don't, you don't have, like, free time. Mm-hmm. And um, I had to take every course twice because I failed them all. Uh, I had, I, you know, had an issue of, I guess I was basically, I didn't believe in myself. I was a lazy kid. Uh, didn't do my homework, and you know that's what happens. And you end up at the bottom of your class. Uh, but that was all to change, which we'll be talking about. Did you have any um, extracurriculars? Were you a sports uh, guy? Uh, yeah, Were I, you? I, I played a... football. I played football, and uh, I played baseball. I bo- mm-hmm. belonged to the uh, church baseball team, uh-huh. and um, but that you know when we used to play stickball and all those street games you, t- you hear about from New yeah. York, stickball and boxball, stoopball, uh, and that was uh, that was uh, we used to play you know in the streets, but. Nowadays, you can't play in the streets. It's uh-huh. too many cars, but in those days, it wasn't so bad. I, I ask this because I know further, when you get into your career, um, you have a musical ability. or you oh. have, So were you involved in <laughs> right, any music? Uh, right, sure. I, uh, I studied accordion, a, a Polish kid, kind uh-huh. of played the accordion. And I always sang. I was a, uh, I was fearless about singing. And people are often... 
very sh- shy about opening their mouth. And mm-hmm. but for some reason, I just love to sing, and I sang, uh, and I was always try- trying to get into choirs and singing groups and stuff. When it says to you know sing, I would join up. I'm there, you know. We'll talk about your perfect pitch <laughs> later on in in your career. Um, so after high school, um, what was your next step? Did you go well, to college? No, well, I, I did. I went to I went to Southeast Missouri State College because that's the only one I could get into, and um, actually it was it was fun. I mean, I went there for a year, and as I I was. Uh, mostly successful at theater. We did, I belonged to the theater group and we did a lot of plays and I really loved that. In, in academics, not so much. Uh, and, I, you know, I was doing poorly. I, I always carried over my bad habits from mm-hmm. high school into college. And, um, you know, so I, I was not a good uh, fit for me. And then I just, I dropped out and went back to New York and... Um, and I started getting jobs, you know. In those days, the minimum wage was a dollar an hour. I made $40 a week. Uh, mostly I worked in banks. I don't know why. I mm-hmm. went, became an IBM trainee uh, and worked on the IBM machines with the punch cards and all that stuff. And uh, and I ended up um, in, a, in a job. Actually, I was doing pretty well. I became like a, a leading bookkeeper in the bank I was working in. And but I, I had the place got kind of toxic, and I, I felt like I had to leave. I just and I, and I dreaded um, going back out on the street looking for a job with a you know a draft rating A one. Uh, you know people are always hesitant to sign you up. Now this is before the Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. I mean the war was they you know they, they had. Um, advisors in there but it wasn't like the real war hadn't started yet and um, I, I dreaded going around trying to convince people that they should hire me and I also dreaded probably going back to minimum wage and trying to prove my way back up to where mm-hmm. I was so I just um, I was riding the subway and I was thinking about joining the Navy because I I, I I longed to go to sea. I remember in New York Harbor, you'd see the ships, and I'd always be captivated by the ships tied up at the docks and steaming through the harbor. And I said, I want to go to sea. And, uh, and, and But I thought, you need a Navy. You know, you sit there and polish guns and wait for war mm-hmm. I, I don't, and a train. And I said, I want to do something more than that. And then I looked up, and I saw a, um, a poster with a big icebreaker on it. It says U.S. Coast Guard. And uh, and I, I did a little research. I found out the Coast Guard does all this work, like re- search and rescue and, and you know, lots of other weather patrols. Maybe we can talk about that a little bit later. But, um, and, but, uh, and, and when wartime came, the Coast Guard would be subsumed into the Navy. And I said, that's perfect. I mean, I want, I'll have a real thing to do while I'm... Uh, you know, a young man and no war. And if a war comes, I'll be in the Navy where I want to be. And uh, so I went to see my recruiter and they, they, they picked me. But the thing was, um, I, I, I told them, see, the Coast Guard has a little higher standard. I won't say why they picked me, because mm-hmm. you have to pass a test, and it's the toughest test of all the you know, uh, intelligence tests that they give you in the services. So the Coast Guard's the hardest service to pass that test, so I, I passed that test. And then I talked to the recruiter. I said, you know, the Coast Guard is famous for having little, little boats around the coast and mm-hmm. helping people with their 
boating issues and stuff. I don't want to do that. I want to go to sea. How can I go to sea? He says, well, you get a rating that goes to sea, a sea rating, like Sonorman. I said, okay, I want to be a Sonorman <laughs> because I want to go to sea. Sonorman don't don't work on little boats in the mm-hmm. harbor. You have to go on a ship that uh, you know has torp- tor- uh, anti-submarine warfare. See, so um, so okay. I said I'll I'll do. Uh, I want to be. I'm going to sign up and I'll be a. I want to be a sonarman. So well, you go to boot camp and then they'll, you know, you take a test and they'll figure out if you're good enough. And so uh, I did. I went to boot camp and boot camp was good. Uh, you know, it's, it got me in shape. <laughs> where where was boot camp? In Cape May, New Jersey. Okay. Uh, it was in winter. It was very cold. I remember one night the, the harbor froze over. It was really cold, but uh, but and, and at came time they say you know okay it's time for the sonar test. Anybody who wants to take the sonar test, come on and join in. So uh, I went. There were a hundred young men that took the sonar test, and I and I'm it's just you know like I got the headphone on now. Just you mm-hmm. put on the headphone and it's you know you listen to things and they and they say you know tell them with the, how the pitch changes. Does the pitch go up? Does the pitch go down? And you have to just fill in the blanks up down same. Mm-hmm. And I did that. And out of a hundred guys, three of us passed this test. And it turns out that music musical ability has a lot to do with pitch memory, and. Uh, you know, because the sonorman, uh, in sonar, uh, the, the sonar pings, and you hear that no, the sound of the echo, or not the echo, but the sound going out. I know I don't want to make the sonar sound, but it goes out, and if the and it, when it bounces back off the submarine or whatever the target is, if the target's moving towards you, it just like there's the Doppler effect, and it squeezes all those sound things together. So when it reaches you, it's got a higher pitch. If it's moving away from you, it stretches those sound waves out, and it makes a lower pitch. So you can tell by listening whether the submarine is coming or going, and or if it's just uh, a, what they call a beam aspect, so that it's just that pitch is just staying the same. And um, so uh, that's. I know that's the the whole idea of the pitch memory and ability to distinguish pitches is what made me, uh, and I loved being a sonarman, although uh, I did very little of that. I was mostly uh, doing radar work, which is a lot of fun, too. We worked with the Weather Bureau, and maybe we want to talk about that separately. Mm -hmm. I don't know. What kind of training did they give you uh, as far as being a sonarman? uh, I went to Key West, Florida for... About four months of training. And how old? How old are you? I at was this point? at this point. It, it's interesting. On my way to Key West, I turned twenty-one. I remember going. I remember going into a bar. We stopped. Me and my friend who were going to school. We stopped in Orlando. I mean, you know, back in those days, I don't know why we stopped in Orlando, but I guess it was the way that travel worked in the nineteen sixties. And um, no Disney World there at that. <laughs> point. No Disney World, right? And uh, we stopped in a. Uh, in Orlando when we were in a motel and I said I'm gonna get some beers you know so I went there was a tavern right uh, mm-hmm. right around the corner I went to this tavern and uh, I, I ordered a six-pack and the guy said let me see your ID so mm-hmm. I whip out my ID and I <laughs> hand it to him and he's and he's looking at it and he's looking at it and I, I said I'm gonna turn 21 in four hours <laughs> <laughs> And he said, okay, I'll give you the six-pack. <laughs> Happy birthday. <laughs> and um, 
So that was, my, you know, I turned 21. But anyway, so, it's, uh, and, and Key West, uh, it was, I, I have so many Key West stories. I don't want, I don't know where to go with this, but uh, we had, a, we, we did very well in school there. I did. I mean, I, uh, we studied electronics and, uh, and we did a lot of um, simulations, you know, and being a, sitting in a dark room with this machine that, that's like being on a ship, but isn't, and it's a sonar machine and you got the, just target on the machine and you have to chase it and mm-hmm. you know uh, do the the whole attack thing i mean i don't do it i just mm-hmm. give, give the the bearings and ranges to the target and the other guys who do the shooting do that mm-hmm. you know it must have been interesting having probably drew people from all over the country just a real mix of people although i think you're Living in uh, Brooklyn, you probably uh, dealt with a whole mix of people. Oh, absolutely. I, uh, in fact, to this day, I still have a facility with languages. I've, I mean, I only speak English. I'm really not, but I, I know Polish pretty well. I know Italian. I know, uh, you know, uh, Spanish, of course. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and and I know a, I could tell a language. I can tell the difference between Cantonese and Mandarin. I mean, just from riding the subways, you hear so many languages, you know, uh, and 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 you get to know what who the people are and wh- what their what their life is and and you get the I mean, maybe it's also part of the musical thing mm-hmm. just to hear and understand yeah. the, the how the the, the the intonations and what all of people's languages I've I've always uh, and you know I'm good at imitating languages too. <laughs> so you had this whole group of people who've come to um, Key, Key, Key West. West. And you're all, all together in the dark, learning learning your <laughs> sonar skills. Right. Um, did they? What was it like? Did you all go out afterwards? Well, well we used to go. We, what we used to do, <clears throat> excuse me, we, practically every day, we would go to the beach, and we would go snorkeling. That was that was the the thing to do. And I remember when I, my first day in Key West, it was in March. And, um, and I, I walked out, out from the barracks in my t-shirt, which is a uniform, it was hot. So they, mm-hmm. the t-shirt was a uniform of the day. And I went to the PX and I came back and I had a sunburn. And one day, one just walking on the street for mm. 15 minutes, I got a sunburn. By the time I left in August, um, I was tan. <laughs> I could lie on the beach for three hours and and just tan. It was no more sunburn, and my, and because I was also snorkeling for hours at a day, uh, I also had a great tan on my back. <laughs> so, how long were you down in Key West for training? Well, so from March until August. That's what's that? About four months, three or four months, something like that. And then, what? Uh, where did they send you after well, that? <clears throat> I. I this this is what where the Coast Guard begins to change my life because uh, I was really excited about being in the Coast Guard and being a sonarman and eventually going to sea, and I was very motivated about all that and I wanted to succeed, so I found out in sonar school that I was smart. Uh, I could learn all this stuff. I you know where in high school I was kind of. I didn't succeed, and I never got positive feedback mm-hmm. uh, from the system, so to speak. But here, 
uh, I was working hard and I was succeeding and I ended up graduating with distinction. And uh, what happened then was uh, we got at the end of when we graduated, uh, we had to get our duty assignments. <clears throat> and um, I got first pick because, you know, the first the guy at the top in the class gets to pick the first of all the duty assignments. I could pick anyone I wanted. And then he went down through the class and the poor guy at the bottom get whatever's <laughs> left over. And so I picked Hawaii. I said, why not go to Hawaii, you know? And uh, so I, went, I was, um, I was uh, sent to the Coast Guard Cutter Chautauqua uh, in Honolulu, Hawaii. And the Chautauqua was what's called a weather cutter. And uh, in those days, the Coast Guard, there were no weather satellites. Uh, so the Coast Guard used to be what today are the weather satellites. And we were out there, we wouldn't go, we were in the Coast Guard, but we would, our, our place to go was the middle of the ocean, as far away from the coast as you could, as you could get. And uh, we would go to Ocean Station, which in, in the Pacific, we would go to Ocean Station Victor, which, is the, which was uh, halfway between Midway Island, which was the end of the Hawaiian archipelago, and Japan, halfway across, so that um, not only were you in the middle of the ocean, but we could also monitor air, air traffic across the Pacific. Uh, we were part of the distant early warning system. And Ocean Station is just a place in the ocean. It's a That's, place in the ocean. There's no island. There's no... No, okay. nothing, nothing, just a grid, uh, an imaginary grid. Uh, and you navigate to that point and... And how big was the ship that you were on? This ship was a 255-foot cutter, uh, kind of like a destroyer escort, maybe a little smaller than that. <clears throat> we had 130 men on the ship. Nowadays, they also have women, but in those days, uh, it was all men. And, um, and well, as I said, we, we, had, um, we were doing weather. So we had actually weather bureau personnel on board, a couple of guys who were the, the, the heart of the weather program. And our first mission out there was to do weather. Although we were monitoring aircraft traffic and we were uh, assisting aircraft by giving them, you know, we would track them on radar and give them their airspeed and, um, or ground speed rather, and their course and speed and whatever. And uh, they would check in with us and tell us what they, you know, how they were doing and how many passengers they had. And in case they needed to, if they couldn't, if they had an issue and they couldn't resolve it and they couldn't reach land, we were, we were there to help them ditch. And uh, what does that mean? That means the aircraft lands on the water. And uh, just like the guy, remember, what's, what's his name? The, the, the movie, they made the movie of the pilot who took off from LaGuardia Airport. And uh, Sully. Sully, that's right. Uh, and ditched in the uh, East River. And, and that was made him famous because he ditched his plane in mm -hmm. the East River. Well, the, that's what we were trained to do was to help planes ditch. And it actually only happened once uh, in the whole history of the Ocean Station yeah. systems. But it happened on, in, uh, on Ocean Station November, which was the ocean station between Hawaii and the West Coast. Mm -hmm. And that, that was a very successful ditching. Uh, they were, they, everybody was safe and 
you know, was a, worked out very well. So we like to think that we were there, you know, for also that good Coast Guard helping people on the water, right? Good Coast Guard reason. I'm still stuck on the fact that this was... I'm so used to having weather satellites telling us everything. <laughs> right. and this well, was... we, used, we used to send up balloons. We had four balloons a day. Two, two of them had transmitters that would transmit, you know, weather, I mean, uh, temperature and um, uh, humidity and all that stuff. But we were doing, we were tracking them on radar to get the wind speeds, winds aloft, they call that. And, uh, and we would, we, we know we'd have a big tra- track table a big tracking table and plot it out and plot, plot that balloon tracking out. And then the weathermen would be able to, you know, uh, they had instruments that could tell them how fast that balloon was moving. And then all that would get sent back uh, to Washington and integrated into the weather prediction system. Did you ever have to deal with, like, Really bad weather when you were oh, out on yeah, the seas. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, we, but uh, I, I, I have a I'll start with the. Here's a sea story. It's a short one. Uh, we were we were in a we were in a storm, uh, and uh, we we had we had to turn the ship such that it you know it was going into the waves because and regardless of where we were headed we had to go into the waves because it was a big storm Mm -hmm. and um but it was the wind the wind actually was on the uh what we call the 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 starboard side i was on my ship my my compartment that i was working in was on the port side so the wind that's the leeward side Mm -hmm. so the the wind would blow on the wind on the windward side and on the leeward side you didn't have the wind so we had the door open and i was looking out the door and i my my my, i was on the bridge deck which is about 30 feet above the water and i'm looking out at the sea and i see this wave climb above the horizon and i said and i'm looking up i mean it's not right here it's it's off in the distance and i'm looking i was at that wave is higher than I am right now and I'm 30 feet above the water you know mm-hmm. and uh, and I'm looking at the wave and the wave comes and all of a sudden the ship starts to roll and I'm standing there and all of a sudden the deck is in my hands <laughs> and I'm on my knees and the ship is rolling and it's and I'm I, I, right now I've got goosebumps remembering <laughs> this please stop please stop <laughs> and then it hits a point where you hear stuff breaking loose crash bam you know everything is secured but it only to a certain point right. and all you know plates and dishes and pencils and mm. things are flying everywhere you know and it stopped thank god it stopped you know and then it rolls back the other way and whoo that was scary but that's a short one, a short sea story. Was that like in a hurricane or just no, regular? No, it was just this, uh, rough weather at sea. Mm-hmm. That's all. It wasn't a hurricane or anything like that. No, that we wouldn't have had the doors open in a yeah. hurricane. No. <laughs> did you ever get? Did you ever get used to the rough weather? Or oh, was absolutely. It always a... Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, but uh, but you know, uh, you talk about seasickness. I mean, in terms of like nausea and stuff, I had that the first time out, mm-hmm. and which is you kind of have to go through that. But uh, you would still get sick in the sense that you couldn't do anything. Uh, there were times it was so rough. You could, all you could do was go on watch and come off watch and get in bed. 
and just mm. lie in bed and hug the mattress. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, you and it would come around with sandwiches. That was dinner, you know. Yeah. That's you, that's all you, they wouldn't expect you like to show up uh, in the mess deck and mm-hmm. put, 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 it, put out a tray to get oh, food. Gee. No way, that's not gonna happen. Here's a sandwich, you know. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you, and you, you get banged up like that too. So, and it's kind of being sick. I always thought it as being, that's also being seasick, but in another, in another way. <laughs> <laughs> so, how long were you out at sea in your, with your duty out of the Hawaii? I'm sure. Um, well, we would leave Honolulu and we'd spend about a week, we'd go out to Midway to refuel, and it'd take us about three or four days to get out to Ocean Station Victor, and we'd relieve the ship that was there. And the, the, the system was, like, we'd relieve that ship, and then that ship would go into Japan. Mm-hmm. And they would have t- leave, time off, rest and recreation, mm-hmm. R&R is what they called it. And, uh, and then they would come back and relieve us, and we would go into Japan. And we would have our uh, R&R. And, uh, so whatever. how long were you out at? At sea, we were about four weeks uh, on at, the, a time? at a time. So it was like maybe five or six weeks that was the whole cruise. You would go out, stay on station, and then go into Japan, then come back out stay on station go back to Honolulu so it's it's every it was like every six months you would do one of these and it was you know the the whole thing took a couple of months so Mm -hmm. spent a lot of time out there on the water you know (laughs) which I I loved it (laughs) so you were you did the weather stations you helped the the Air Force, or well, just was, all planes? All, all planes. Well, most of them were commercial. You know, Pan, Pan, Clipper One, and Clipper One was going one direction. With uh, that's Pan, Pan Am was Clippers, mm-hmm. and Clipper One was a, a trip. A, I think it went from west to east, and then Clipper Two would be the one coming back the other way. And you would have Air Force and uh, others. You know, Navy, a lot of mm-hmm. Navy aircraft, but uh, mostly commercial and. Uh, you know that's and once in a while, because we were distant early warning. Some sometimes we had a beacon that was on our ship uh, in a radio beacon, so mm-hmm. they could always hear us and know where we were and and, a, and know by the bearing and you know distance where what from what grid we were on on our station. They could get their own, their fix on their own navigation where they were you know where they were in the world. Because this is again before GPS and that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. So uh, you were like human GPS for them. That's right. <laughs> we were there to help help people find their way across the ocean. Exactly. And if they needed help, we have, we were there to help them. Wow, just amazes me. Um, and then, how long were you uh, stationed in Hawaii? And then, what was your uh, next step? Okay. Uh, well, I was I was stationed in Hawaii for about two and a half years. And uh, at one point, uh, because Sonarmen are have a kind of relationship with the ocean, um, we used to have, because you know sound travels through the water, so we had to understand the physics of sound in water, and you know there are these changes in temperature, and and the changes in temperature can affect how the sonar uh, finds and or doesn't find its target. <clears throat> so um, we were then. But the Coast Guard was then taking on a, a mission of oceanography. 
And uh, I was selected as a sonorman to go to oceanography school in Connecticut, uh, which I did, uh, you know, at some stage, and you know, mm-hmm. in my uh, Honolulu career. And um, I came back, and uh, uh, this was during this is 1965 during the geophysical year, which was a, a year, uh, as I recall it, uh, you know, where the whole world was studying the, the Earth. Uh, including the oceans and what have you. So um, we did a, as part of the geophysical year, the the United States um, contribution to the geophysical year, my ship, the Chautauqua, did a a survey, an oceanographic survey of the Kuroshio Current, which is the Asian equivalent of of the Gulf Stream. Uh, It comes up the coast of Japan and arcs over across the Bering Sea, and then uh, they grow these giant cabbages in Alaska, believe it or not, because they have nice weather there in the summer. <laughs> and uh, and then it comes down the coast. So you see, like in Oregon and Washington, is weather is milder than it is uh, at other latitudes like that. So um, so that we and and we had to do what we called Nansen casts, where you would go down and collect water samples at great depth. We had huge cables that would take take these uh, sample bottles down. And uh, we also did uh, plankton toes, collecting uh, uh, organisms from the ocean, you know, fish and and, uh, plankton and what have you. And uh, well, an interesting, makes me think of a little interesting thing. My wife, um, after I got married after I got out of the Coast Guard, and uh, we lived in, um, in Washington, D.C. Uh, for a while, for a long time. But my wife, when we first moved there, she took out a job at the Smithsonian as a, and working in, in their um, oceanographic area. Doing, she was also a biology uh, person. Uh, she had gotten her degree in biology, so she was a biological technician. And she, they had all these samples from all all kinds of different cruises and mm-hmm. whatever. And she was up looking through samples, and she found my samples from when I collected uh, plankton toes and what all in the in the Pacific in the geophysical years. It was like destiny. She came home and says, I found your stuff. (laughs) You were meant to be married. (laughs) So so you were doing all of this while you were based in Connecticut? No, no, no. The the I did this Connecticut school and then I went back to the ship in Honolulu. Oh okay. I think I even said that. So Okay. so yeah, it was on the Chautauqua that I, that we and the Kuroshio Current is okay. in in, uh, in Japan. So yeah, and then uh, and then I went back to uh, after that. Well, I have a I have a sea story though concerning oh absolutely uh, concerning Share it with us. my one of my fa- this is actually I, I can call this my favorite sea story. I have one that's more exciting, but this one is a, a wonderful story and it's short too. So, um, one day it was, I was on watch, uh, you know, a radar watch, uh, we're on station. So we're just drifting in the ocean and, um, it's a nice summer day. It's calm, uh, blue sky, you know, just, and it's lovely. So and again, the door is open. I'm sitting, I'm doing the radar air, air search radar, but I can still, you know, look at the radar and then look out the door and see the, you know, the, the sky. Mm-hmm. And it's just 
sitting wonderful. And I looked over and then that the surface radar was just behind me and I looked over at the surface radar and I saw what looked like a squall line on the, on the radar, you know. And I said, what is that, you know? And uh, so I got up and I went and I looked out the door and, you know, to where the squall line was supposed to be. And it was, there was really nothing there. Uh, I could see some white water, you know, mm. and I'm watching and I'm watching. And all of a sudden, up close, I can see fins coming out of the water and porpoises jumping out of the water. And, and, and I'm, I, got, I got out. Out of the, I left the uh, radar shack, and I got out on the deck, and I'm looking around, and all around, as far as I can see, are porpoises, thousands of porpoises. Again, I got, I got, the, I got the goosebumps just now. Think about it, <laughs> and nobody else noticed. <laughs> I'm standing up there as a lookout on the top, and there's an officer of the deck in the bridge. Mm. And I said, hey, guys, uh, anybody want to take a look at this, you know? And it was so exciting, and we got the ship underway. I, I turned on the sonar, mm-hmm. uh, actually not the sonar, but what we call the underwater telephone, which is a mm-hmm. sonar, sonar apparatus. You, you can talk through the water right. to another ship. And uh, I turned on this telephone, and that you could hear the porpoises chirping uh, it, through the through the transfo- transponder for the... Uh, yeah for the, uh, the underwater telephone. And uh, we started chirping back. <laughs> and we had a great time. And uh, it was a wonderful experience. And uh, we call, now I've learned they call that a, a megapod, a megapod of porpoises. And, and what, why were they in the middle of the ocean? Uh, they must have been something special going on. But, you know, you wouldn't expect them to. No. The, the middle of the ocean is not the most fertile place for fishing or catching fish or whatever but maybe there was some they were following something out there i don't know but it was an amazing experience wow and what was your you had one other sea story oh right well that that was um the other one is uh kind of more exciting i guess this is the 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 porpoise one is beautiful Mm -hmm. but this one uh i after after i served in uh, on the chautauqua I was uh, transferred back to New York because <clears throat> I was recruited in New York and I wasn't planning to to re-enlist. So uh, they sent me back to New York for, for my final duty station so they wouldn't have to pay my, my airfare <laughs> to get me home. <laughs> and uh, so I was, I was stationed then on the Coast Guard Cutter Spencer uh, out of New York City, and Staten Island. And... Um, the Spencer was a 311-foot uh, Coast Guard cutter, a uh, little bigger than 255. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're more like a destroyer escort, maybe that size. But anyway, um, we were on duty for, the, I say we were on duty. My ship was on duty for search and rescue or whatever was necessary over the 4th of July weekend. Now, what happened in New York Harbor was, uh, this is in 1966. Uh, in June of 1966, there was a collision. Uh, two ships collided uh, in it's a a place right between Staten Island and uh, New Jersey and it's called Kilvan Cull and one ship which was a Cape uh, Alpha Cape which was a a tanker Mm -hmm. carrying naphtha naphtha is like lighter fluid 
And um, that ship collided with the Texaco, Massachusetts, which was coming out of Newark Bay, which which Kill Van Cull enters mm-hmm. uh, Newark Bay. They collided there too, and the both ships had had uh, tugboats uh, helping them. Then one was leaving New York, the other one was coming in. And one had lighter fluid, and, and one had, had oil. Oil. <laughs> or actually, that one was uh, was not didn't have anything. Oh. It had it had uh, discharged all its cargo. Okay. And it was heading out uh, to get more. And uh, it then collided, and there was a huge fire. Uh, 30, 34 people died in this accident. It's a terrible tragedy. Uh, the, t- the, three, the two tugboats in the Texaco, Massachusetts, were, were sent to yards to get repaired. And the Alva Cape, was, uh, which had six... Uh, six no, three million gallons of naphtha on board was then taken to Gravesend Bay, which is Gravesend is just at the uh, su- just south of the uh, eastern end of the Verrazano Bridge, which, as a New Yorker, we used to call it Verrett's Narrow Bridge, but <laughs> but uh, with the, the Verrazano Bridge and. Um, and it was it was tied up there, and with the idea of they were going to salvage the rest of the naphtha that was in the uh, in the ship, and uh, and it was Fourth of July weekend when that was going on, and um, they uh, it was a very hot weekend, and naphtha has a very low flash point, so it went up again. Oh wow! And four more people were killed. Oh my! And I remember seeing uh, we were called out. To, because the mayor said, I want that ship out of here and get that ship out of here now. And uh, so they had a little trouble getting tugboats, but they got a couple of Moran tugboats uh, and we went to escort them. When we, and our job then was going to be to scuttle this ship at sea. And scuttle means? Means to sink it. And... Um, and I remember as we approached the, the scene, because uh, we, had, we had to go to New Jersey to get ammunition in order to scuttle this thing. And, uh, and I, I, coming to the Verrazano Bridge, here was this huge scorch mark across the Verrazano Bridge where this thing had exploded uh, just a few days ago. And so uh, the two tugs and the Coast Guard Cutter Spencer took this ship out 150 miles offshore, and we were charged with sinking it. And they gave us anti-aircraft ammunition, which is a funny kind of a thing because uh, if you have surface ammunition, I think they probably only had, we had a five-inch gun, and um, anti-aircraft ammunition penetrates and then explodes. Surface ammunition explodes on contact. So if you have surface ammunition, it hits the ship and blows a big hole in it, mm-hmm. and then the ship will sink. Well, in this case, we, we're shooting anti-aircraft ammunition, making tiny pinholes in the side of the ship, and if stuff is exploding inside, and this naphtha is going crazy, burning, huge explosions going off, but there's just little tiny holes in oh, the wow. hull, you know, and they, they, they used up all the ammunition, and we're all standing there saying, oh my goodness, is it, and, and the New York News has got a helicopter, <laughs> what happens if it doesn't sink, sink you know? but 
praise God, it went down. And uh, it was kind of exciting. I mean, I, I, I turned the sonar on because it kind of, you know, how ships will do that. They just fold in half and, mm-hmm. and go down. And uh, so I, I turned the sonar on and I was pinging off this, mm-hmm. you know, this wreckage as it was sinking. And uh, what, 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 um, this reminds me, though, of... Uh, during the this Coast Guard cutter was old. I mean, it was built in the 30s. It was so here it is, 1966. It's probably like 35 years old, and it had been through the war. So it had Navy paint and Coast Guard paint, and, uh, many layers of paint. Mm. <laughs> and uh, while they were shooting the guns, I was in the, what they call the Combat Information Center, where you know all the tr- radar and pa- the sonar and tracking the guns go off and then the paint starts to fall <laughs> off <laughs> you know all the wires and stuff in the ceiling is all this stuff is coming down you got to brush yourself off every time a gun goes off but that that was kind of part of the humor of the thing mm-hmm. uh but then uh you know finally the ship went down and that was quite dramatic too you know that you of course there were, and these explosions going off you know uh, which you have that sense of it's off in the distance so you see the thing explode and then Whomp, you know, it, it hits you later, and uh, but then after it was gone, you know, we had we had to go and patrol the area to make sure there weren't any hazards of nav to navigation left adrift, mm-hmm. and um, so we're cruising through this area where the ship had sank, and I by that time now they had you know secured all the special detail that you had to have for this, you know, this business of scuttling. And I had left the combat information center. I was down on deck uh, in the stern portion, and they call it the fantail. And, you know, you kind of hang out. Guys hang out on the fantail and chew the fat, you know. Mm -hmm. And I'm I'm looking at the wake, the the wake of the ship as it's passing through this water. And the wake is in flames. It's like we're the devil's ship, and the flames are coming out. (laughs) And I'm... And I, I don't maybe somebody, some scientist can explain to me how the sh- how this naphtha catches fire after it's been in the water and the ship's propeller goes through it and feeds it oxygen. I'm sure there's some, but it, you know, it was just astonishing to see the flames floating on the wake out out there. You know, and only in the wake. It wasn't like there was fire everywhere. Mm-hmm. Just only in our wake. So uh, that's my exciting sea story. <laughs> so after, um, so how long were you based in Connecticut for? Well, well no, just I for, mean, in, in, in New York in, for? In New York. Well, I, for about a year, uh, just about a year. Uh, and, you know, I, I'm, I'm just, well, of course, we also did ocean stations in the Atlantic, by the way. I, I did two ocean stations in the Atlantic, uh, but there were more of them, you know, they, mm-hmm. because there's a lot more of traffic it's a shorter distance, for one thing. A lot more traffic between Europe and and uh, the United States and uh, and North America than uh, than there was in the Pacific. So it was very busy. We had to do a lot of lot of aircraft work uh, in the Atlantic. But then, but the, also we did the weather work, and the weather always had priority unless there was an emergency, and then mm-hmm. uh, then the weather would. But, but that was our mission, was the weather. So the, all the aircraft stuff had to kind of take the background while we did the balloon tracking. Mm-hmm. So. so it seems to me that um, your time in the Coast Guard really um, shaped you as a person. You gained confidence, right, and, right. and you realized 
just who you were and how smart you were. And it it seems like... And that I could succeed. And that you could succeed. Did it also, it seems like it also um, shaped the trajectory of sort of your your next career and and well i you know it's uh i went to went to college then i went to college i for real this time i'm going to college because i want to learn and i want to do because i want to be an oceanographer that's what i thought i did this oceanography work on the you know on the in the corocio current it was so exciting i want to do this and uh so uh and you went on the gi bill Yes, oh, that you know that was the other thing um, it, that was made it made it possible for me to, you know, to pay my rent mm-hmm. <laughs> every month. And uh, anyway, um, so I, I went went to college. I met my wife in college. She also wanted to be a, a marine scientist. And we what college it, was that? This is Southampton College. It's a small college, or it was a small college. Mm-hmm. It's, it, it was part of the Long Island University, and. Um, but now it, it has become part of the State University of New York. It has been uh, subsumed into Stony Brook. Uh, but um, back back in those days, it was a very good, very good oceanography school, by the way. Both really good marine science. It was right on the water, Southampton, Long Island. Uh, so we had lots of opportunities to get out and do do some real marine research. And uh, but the thing was, both of us, me me and my wife, we started out to be marine scientists. I hit the wall at chemistry. Mm-hmm. She hit the wall at physics. <laughs> <laughs> and we said maybe we'll just be biologists, you know. So we both became biologists, and um, and I. I I went on. That's why I told you the story about her and work, working at the Smithsonian. She then went, went on to uh-huh. work at the EPA. We we became environmental uh, people. Uh, we we did the first Earth Day at our college. The first, the very first day, Earth Day ever. The one at the beginning of Earth Days. But then I I wanted to you know I wanted to go on and do more uh, to go to graduate school. Uh-huh. And um, but my mentor said, you know, you're not really cut out for this science stuff. You, you're more of a, um, so, you know, I, he said, I could see you working in, uh, you know, in environmental uh, issues and the kind of environmental issues like land development and stuff like that. So, now, who was your mentor? Well, he was a professor at the, at the college. Uh, his name was uh, Hairsign, Tom Hairsign. How great that he was like, yeah, sort of telling you your truth, right, right, <laughs> right, and uh, and he, I knew I recognized immediately that he was because I worried about you know I didn't have that kind of detail and concentration on for details, and he knew that, and I kind of knew that, mm-hmm. and uh, so and and I ended up uh, going to the University of Pennsylvania to study uh, environmental planning at the uh, School of Landscape Architecture and Regional Planning. And I got a master's degree in regional planning, specializing mm-hmm. in environmental planning, um, and um, and then I became an environmental planner, <laughs> and I worked uh, in uh, local government and um, and in regional regional government uh, for, for many years, until I finally uh, at at the end of my career, I worked at a, kind of a think tank mm-hmm. uh, in Washington D.C. Sp- that specializes in urban land development issues and um, I was the environmental director at the uh, think tank and uh, so I mean I'm 
it was not always uh, not always a smooth sailing through mm-hmm. my career, but every time I hit a rocky spot, I ended up in a better place. So, and I, you know, my so my trajectory was mm-hmm. always upwards. <laughs> and it wasn't it a straight out, line. And huh? It wasn't a straight line. It was it was uh, very well, and I, uh, you know, I'm very pleased. And I and I, I always attribute the change in my life to what happened to me in the Coast Guard. I mean, uh, and every time I, I talk to young people who are, you know, graduating or whatever, I always have to say, you know, think about the service. You know, I mean, uh, it doesn't... I, I encourage you to look at the Coast Guard, but, you know, any service, uh, you can find your way. You, you can learn who you are and learn to find to find your your central your core mm-hmm. um it's wonderful and i and really really has as i said it changed my mind my 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 life and um i i'm very happy i did it <laughs> just cuz i wanted to go to sea that's just amazing mm-hmm. that you started out wanting to go to sea and then the trajectory that your life took and um, and then with your environmental planning and your um, urban planning, right. how did, um, not the sea, but did the wa- did, how did the water well, play a role? Okay, yeah. I, well, I, most, of, most of the time I was in um, uh, water quality management. I mean, water quality, like surface water, um, watershed protection, mm-hmm. um, stormwater management, uh, so water was, and uh, water is a great integrator. You know, it, it it flows over the land. It flows through the land. It's 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 the 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 embodiment of the earth. I mean, it, because it's the ocean too. You know, so um, yeah, water has always uh, played a central role in my in my career. And then, how did you end up here at Westminster Canterbury? Well, that's a good question. Um, actually, you know, because um, I retired, um, and of course you're by the the beautiful Chesapeake <laughs> exactly, Bay. Exactly right. Well, and, and and spent I spent a lot of time when I was in I, I worked in the Washington metropolitan area at Prince George's County, Maryland, and at the Washington um, Metropolitan Council of Governments, and uh, our our mission. Primarily through that was to clean up the Potomac River, which back in the 1960s was a, a travesty. It was a smelly, dark green, flowing mess. And um, and I, I know, I like to think that I made a contribution to what you see when you go by the Potomac now. It's a beautiful, clean uh Fish filled river. Mm-hmm. Um, I may think about uh, you know the, back in the day there was you know just algae, great clumps of algae growing in the Potomac, and now now you they have uh, fish guides that will take you around Washington D.C. to fish for bass, uh, smallmouth bass, largemouth bass, striped bass. Uh, you know, um, so it's been a dramatic change, I, and I'm and. So I'm connected to the Chesapeake Bay that way. And uh, we always thought, you know, but that's the big picture was the Chesapeake Bay. We were working on the Potomac 
and in, when I was in Prince George's, also the Patuxent River. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, it always focused on the bay. And uh, but uh, what happened when um, we started looking around, my wife and I looking, because we knew uh, you know, that we we're going to have to find our way through our later years together. Uh, you know, we, there's, there's nobody who's going to take care of us. Uh, we're going to have to take mm-hmm. care of ourselves. And uh, so we looked around at various retirement communities and we searched around and we liked, there were a lot of places we liked, but when we came here, we just said, this is it. You know, uh, look at the, look, you know, here, here's the beach, here's, here's the Chesapeake Bay, here are these urban amenities, you know, because mm-hmm. we had lived, after uh, we retired, we lived in, on the Northern Neck for a while, which was lovely. It's a beautiful rural place, and we loved wildlife. We always have been bird watchers, and um, we had, you know, in the seven years we lived there, we had 99 species of birds that we saw from our house, mm-hmm. you know. So, uh, but uh, but after a while, you need, I'm, I'm from New York, you know, <laughs> and she, <laughs> she was from Long Island. Yes. Virginia Beach just offered all these beautiful amenities and uh, the beach and the ocean uh, right nearby and the bay right at our feet. It was a it was a perfect no, match. Yeah, a no-brainer. <laughs> so let me ask you this as sort of our final question. Um, how have you, you, your history with the water and with environmental science and Earth Day, how have you applied that um, here at Westminster Canterbury? Well, actually, it's been my wife who's done that mostly. Uh you know, I, I, I had a different, uh, when I came here, I had a, a, something else, which I'll, I'll mention to you too, but my wife has been the one who has worked on landscape in the in the community, uh, and she's, I call her a celebrity, because everybody's always stopping her to tell her what a beautiful job she's done with mm-hmm. the landscaping. And, uh, and you know, we've also uh, con- been concerned about, uh, we can see the runoff going into the bay, and uh, you know, we've we've talked to, to folks about um, you know how how to improve our 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 how we affect the bay, mm-hmm. the runoff from our f- mm-hmm. property, mm-hmm. Uh, and you know we used to see places uh, where right nearby where you could see water mm-hmm. you know runoff from the roads and all, and so we, we and we've worked. Um, I say we and Janet deserves most of the credit. Like we have now, we have special areas around the property that we can call um, rain gardens because water water is attracted to these places before it drains into the bay it has to be filtered by these plants and 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 it not only filters the water but provides a beauty for the community so that's a lovely thing i on the other hand uh, i came here and uh I thought to myself, I'm not going to do anything for a year. I'm just going to sit around and, and watch and went to see what, I, what I'm mm-hmm. going to want to do. But I, what happened when I got here was I found myself thrown into a whole bunch of friends, uh, which had never happened to me before. I've, I've always had struggled to get to be friendly with people, not to be friendly, but mm-hmm. to find friends that will last as friends, to find a community of mm-hmm. people that... And often that has centered around church, 
but um, you know, and I, and I, but church is a place that comes and goes. You're there sometimes, mm. and you're and then you're back home. And mm. at home, it's hard to find people. Mm. The neighbors aren't always the people that you want to be friends with, mm-hmm. you know. And so um, I came here, and I, after struggling, especially after seven years on the Northern Neck, where we ended up with like two couples that were kind of we were good friends with after seven years, I came here, and uh, I was astonished at how quickly. Uh, I became part of a social network and was, uh, and immediately found a whole bunch of friends and people I could be comfortable with and see often, and um, that's why I then I stepped in to become uh, to work on the welcome committee and to help pay that forward, mm-hmm. you know, to have bring that to more people. So I've been more socially involved. She's been more that's one who's been more physically involved mm-hmm. in in the. The environment here. Well, I will just one little plug for uh, Janet. She's been instrumental in helping uh, convert about a third of our land into native plants right. to support all the those dying bees and butterflies. And <laughs> well, we like have that. more we have more bees and butterflies I, now than I we know, used to, and it's I beautiful. Know. So, is there anything? Is there a question that I didn't? that I didn't ask you that you want to answer? Is there something you want to share with us? Well, I, I, feel, like, I feel like I've shared a lot. <laughs> <laughs> and I've managed to sneak in a lot of things that I didn't think I was going to say, too. So I was going to ask, you know, being in the Pacific a lot of your career, was there any responsibility on your part having to do with, like, Cold War response, that kind of thing? What from, kind of response? Like, you know, there was a Cold War going on. Oh, Cold well, You know, she intercept anything. No, you know, no, no, no. <laughs> well, I, the, only thing, like the only thing we had, I, oh, actually, yeah, I, I do have an, another sea story. Sure, you right? totally, you totally reminded me of, sure. uh, which um, when one, one time we were, we were just called out uh, as part of a exercise to go to Christmas Island in the Pacific Ocean. And this was because they, and I'm trying to, this is something I'm trying to recall as I tell it. Um, the United States was, because of the Cold War, was considering renewing um, nuclear testing. And so they were, they were gonna, we were, the exercise was to go to Christmas Island and pretend that we're gonna blow it up and see what happens, you know. And we, this is with the Navy. It wasn't just us. I mean, it was the, the Navy. We were part of the Navy exercise. And um, and I think that they, they also were trying to flush out uh, submarines, Russian submarines uh, and others, I guess, uh, that may may want to snoop on this engage, this exercise. So, yeah, so we were there, uh, you know, as part of this, and and I got to be a sonorman. <laughs> this was me living my sonar life, you know, being on sonar watch constantly and looking for submarines. And sometimes we found them. We found them, but um, <laughs> but they went away. Well, what else can you do? I mean, <laughs> somebody wants to fire that first shot. <laughs> right. Right. So that was that was the the big cold war, and we had some other exercises and things, but those were mostly just drills. You know, this one was a real kind of 
national, international thing, you know. Thank you for sharing your your life story and your sea stories. And um, it's a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for allowing me to do this. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Westminster Canterbury Tales podcast. Thank you for listening. 